Welcome back to Coaching Kern, and it's August 1st, episode 18. We're back with our panel of resident experts. I was asked the other day, you know, what are you guys about? Uh, all these people you talk to, uh, I told you off, off the air, we've had great conversations with Alan Jagger, with Jagger Band, um, had a great conversation uh, with Joe Barth Jr. out of New Jersey, the hit doctor. Um, we're getting plugs from Lenny Dykstra, George Brett, Bo Jackson. And I said, I feel like I've got a tribe of mentors right now. I'm a guy you know, grew up in baseball, grew up a, a son of a coach, played minor league baseball, but every day I feel like I get, I get smarter and our resident uh, panel of experts here is going to help build a better baseball IQ with our audience today. So welcome back guys today, August 1st, episode 18, coming off a great show with Bob Schaefer, assistant to the general manager with the Washington Nationals. They should be in the news today and tomorrow with Juan Soto, trade deadlines tomorrow. Uh, but, but welcome back. Glad to have you guys. Good morning, guys. Great to be here. Yep. So, um, Start off quick. I know we want to get into the baseball stuff, but I want you guys to do a little bit of bragging on a personal uh, note. Uh, Bull, you had a, a you had a, a son recently have a great accomplishment. Share, share a little bit with our audience uh, what went on with you this past weekend. Yeah, our son Mason graduated from the United States Navy uh, boot camp in uh, Great Lakes, Illinois, and um, what a transformation of what 10 weeks of uh, diligent everyday um, teamwork. Um, there's something bigger than yourself, which is the message the military has. And to sit there and watch that uh, closing ceremony and the graduation as these young people came marching in completely step-by-step, step, completely perfect. It was absolutely incredible. And uh, God bless our country and to see what, they, what, what they're teaching these kids. And he shipped out on Saturday morning to Charleston, and he starts his uh, career as a uh, nuclear sub uh, electrical engineer. So uh, he's doing his studying down there now and uh, couldn't be prouder. Phenomenal. That's, that's fantastic. Congratulations. Uh, Thank you. Guys. Yeah, that's fantastic. And Sal, you, you've got uh, two, two boys of your own. You give so much back in terms of performance coaching to everybody else's children, but you happen to have two very talented boys that are getting ready to go play uh, some pretty big-time lacrosse. Tell us a little bit about that. School's about ready to begin, I imagine, for them. Yeah, I've had a, a very uh, incredible experience. Uh, I was a coach you know, my whole life and, and was in positions where I was able to coach my own children. I have an uh, older boy who just graduated college and Actually, they're, he's moving down also to South Carolina today, and he'll uh, he'll start a new career down as a civil engineer. And he's a kid who athletics were a huge part of his life. Um, he played club lacrosse for a year uh, for two years at Clemson, and that actually helped him um, get get his job in this civil engineering firm. Uh, so that's a, a lesson I'd like to, and I do pass on to my clients. Um, you know, club sports is still a super important part of your college life, especially these days with what the social life can be like, like uh, you fall into a great club situation with, with, which is what Clemson lacrosse had. Um, it really was a really important uh, experience for him. My twins, uh, another fantastic experience who I've coached in football and um, as a development performance coach, since they were able to start uh, are off to two schools in Maryland. My one son, Dante, uh, we'll be playing uh, at the University of Maryland, Baltimore County. Uh, he has a lacrosse and academic scholarship. And his twin brother, James, who had a rough uh, high school career with injuries, tore his ACL uh, last football game, is going to have an opportunity to walk on 
at the University of Maryland um, in College Park, which, which just won the national championship. Uh, so uh, we're very excited for both boys that, A, they're having that opportunity, and B, that they'll be about a half hour from each other. Yeah, and tell them, tell them Uncle Dave's only about 45 minutes away, so give give me a ring if they, they need anything or need a home-cooked meal for both awesome. boys, so, awesome. um, both your boys and, and Bulls boys. Kevin, coming off two great articles here, and you know, I know we had one about Rick Vaughn, uh, great history article, not Rick, not wild thing Rick Vaughn, but a historian. Uh, Rick Vaughn touched on, a, I mean, I think it was hundreds of professional players that came through that particular park and just did a masterful piece uh, just the other day on, on Aaron Judge. We know you have a relationship with him, and and, and really told some great stories about hitting. Touch on both of those for us as well with Ball 9 Magazine. Everybody, please follow Ball 9 if you're not already. I mean, it is probably Kevin's articles are the main source for Major League Baseball. He's so in touch with in tune with everything going on there. So tell us a little bit about those two articles. Well, uh, St. Petersburg has had 193 Hall of Famers come through uh, in their time. It's the 100th anniversary of their spring tra- training site. Of course, there is no more Al Lang Field of uh, it's a, it's a soccer stadium now. And basically, Rick Vaughn started doing some research. He was a longtime PR director of, um, of the Orioles and, of course, the Rays. And he even worked, uh, he was a PR for the Washington Redskins back when they were the Redskins. And this guy knows how to research and knows everything. And he started as a way to help the city commemorate the 100th year anniversary. And, of course, it being politics, something fell through the cracks. They never got back to him. So he put together this book that's just just amazing. Uh, you know, basically 100, 100 years of baseball on the waterfront in St. Petersburg. It's a great book. I recommend it to everybody. You'll, it's, a, it's, a, it's a quick read. But, you know, you, we love to go to these places. And St. Petersburg is, a, is, a, is just the history, baseball history with the Yankees, the Braves, Boston Braves, the uh, Cardinals, of course, the Mets, of course. I mean, I talk to old-time writers, and I get a little misty in the eyes when they talk about spring training in St. Petersburg because it's back when spring training was super fun for writers as well, as well as the players. You had the harbor there. You had a, a great town, things to do. Babe Ruth hated it when he first got there, by the way. But once he got there, he loved it because he was a big hunter, fisherman, um, golfer, and, and everything else. So... The history, and nobody knows this. Nobody really knows that. And Al Lang brought spring training to, to Florida. I mean, he this was in, like, he was mayor in 1916. He moved from Pittsburgh to St. Petersburg uh, for his health because they, they said he wasn't going to, with the, the situation up in Pittsburgh, asthma and some other things, it was not good for him. Well, he transformed the whole state in a baseball way. And now there's really no nothing commemorative for him. And Rick points out there's 4,000 markers, historical markers in, in Florida, none, none really for Al Lang. So it's really a great book, takes you back, and um, the pictures are great, of course. It was a fun story to do. I love interwining history with baseball, and that's what we do here. We, we make your IQ better and your physical ability better, and I think it's the most unique podcast really in, in the country that respect, because we're not bloviating, we're, we're giving information. And the second piece, of course, Summer Catch was on Aaron Judge. Um, you know, I've had, as you well know, I've had a great relationship with Judge and the family, um, my, his mom and dad, great people, teachers, you know, they, again, we get back to the salt of the earth teachers. And, um, and this is about how he was discovered. And I don't want to spoil this piece. I mean, people can read it, 
go, go to ballonline.com. Um, but, but we'll have some of these people on as well. We'll have Rick Vaughn on, and he, he can tell a much better story about St. Petersburg than me. But, Judge, uh, baseball is a game, and Bull will mention this, but baseball is a game where they make a lot of comparisons. So Matt Hyde, the Yankee scout up in the Cape Cod area, and the Yankees were on Aaron Judge. I want to make that clear. He got drafted in 2013. Um, I think he was the 32nd pick. Uh, he was the second pick the Yankees had because they were afraid the other pick was going to be taken by somebody else. They didn't think anybody else was on Judge. I think the Diamondbacks were on Judge. But um, anyway, they pick him. So they were on him from his time in Fresno. But here's what happened. Here's one of the keys to the whole story. He's in Cape Cod. And Matt Hyde, the Yankee scouts there. And Matt has been with Cape Cod since 1984. Basically, he's been covering it and doing things and, and everything else. So Matt Hyde in 1993, I believe it is, is a catcher for a home run hitting contest in Falmouth. Uh, and George Foster is in the contest. George had retired, but he could still hit, hit bombs. And he hits a, he's hitting line drives across the street into the pond. There's a pond out there. Right? And um, so time goes on. It's 2012. Matt Hyde is watching uh, uh, Aaron Judge take batting practice in Falmouth when really nobody was on him. As, as much as the Yankees were, and Damon Oppenheimer, uh, the director of scouting. And also, Judge is lining balls into the pond, same pond that George Foster was hitting into. So, of course, Matt Hyde, being a scout, said, wow, you know, I haven't seen anything like this since George Foster. This is line drive power, and this is key to the whole story. We, as Yankees, feel that if you have line drive, if you hit line drives, other power will develop because Judge was not a huge home run hitter in college, and so they 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 they, they looked at him, and this is what scouts do: they look ahead, they project, and lo and behold, they draft him in the first round, and now here we are with you know forty two home runs or whatever the heck it is. I lose count every day because he's hitting them out, and he's playing center field. He's an athlete. He's done everything that the Yankees really uh, could ask for of him, and of course, he's doing it all under the financial gun because he's a free agent after the year. So it's a it's a really in-depth story about where he came from. And like Matt said, I want to read that quote one more time because we try to teach here. We found that it's the guys who are the consistent line drive hitters who emerge with power down the road as part of their game. So that's uh, that's just a small part of the story. And Bull can address this later from a scout's perspective. But those are the two pieces that I worked very hard on this week. And I think, uh, it, you know, people need to read them I don't know how you do it every week. You put out quality every week, and, and each one is a little bit different, but it tells a great story, and it, you feel like you're a part of their lives. I, I think I tweeted the point that you're, you're making, too, and I think this is good for young hitters out there. Good hitters can develop power, and, and I think, Bull, you tell a story about Cal Ripken's advice that he got from his dad, I think, way back when. Good hitters can develop power, but I don't think power hitters can become good hitters, um, and, and I think that's evident in the story there. Um, we uh, both share that story about Cal. I know you, you told it once before, but I think it's important enough to tell again. <clears throat> yeah, his dad had always told him from the beginning, you know, your 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 job is not going to be to hit home runs. You want to be a good hitter. And he taught every hitter to be a good hitter. And <clears throat> the philosophy was to hit the ball hard, hit line drives as hard as you can from gap to gap. Um, you want to drive the ball in the gaps. And if you end up becoming big enough and strong enough and figuring out 
how to how to lift the ball, which is to catch it out front and catch the bottom of the ball, you're going to end up hitting home runs. But if you don't, you're going to end up being a damn good hitter. And um, I will tell you, there's a line that I put into many, many reports, and it, it's growing now, is he, uh, if I'm writing about a hitter that uh, has a little bit of power, um, and he's not a very good hitter. The comment that I use is he has enough power to make himself a bad hitter. <laughs> I like and, that. That's a good line. And by the way, uh, to back that point up, you know, Judge is hitting 300 as well. We're right around it. I, when I wrote the story, he was at 300. And uh, I think there were only 18 guys hitting 300. And of course, no one had the amount of home runs he had. But just, uh, you know, Jordan Alvarez from the Astros is uh, 316, and he's got like 30 home runs. He's a good hitter, too. You know, yeah. you got to be a good hitter. I watched the Astros yesterday, and they, they beat the Mariners uh, when Alvarez came up first and third with the fake runner, which we all hate on, on third base, but they needed a run. What did he do? He didn't take three big swings and strike out and walk back to the dugout and somebody tap him on the back and the backside and say, hey, great job, kid. No. He punched the ball through shortstop where there was no shortstop because the idiots shift and uh, and he and, and he won the game. And by the way, if you can't take advantage of shifting and hitting, you're it's on you. So when baseball makes these new rules with the lines and they're doing it now in the Florida State League, what a joke! What a joke that is with baseball. It's it's a clown show. Guys in charge and Gary Allison sent me a note today. Matter of fact, uh, longtime catcher and minor league manager and coach and stuff. He pointed out that, uh, and I had missed this, that in one of the games this year, uh, Joe Adele uh, from, I think, uh, in Salt Lake, he got called out on a strike three for a, um, uh, you know, a a pace of play violation. Well, what happened was there were 40-mile-per-hour winds. The winds blew dirt into the plate, and, you know, he almost, you know, his eyes, there's no common sense. So baseball continues to destroy itself from within. Hopefully we can help build a new generation of fans who understand the game and get rid of the clowns that are running baseball right now. That's uh, that's very important. Sal, you wanted to add something? Uh, yeah, to the point about line drive hitters being the ideal because what what else they could do if they're hitting line drives, we see the same thing. When you're developing athletes, you have these kids. You, you, it could be the fastest kid in the 40 or the best vertical jump out of a group of athletes. <clears throat> That's the indicator you need to be able to turn them into great athletes in whatever sport. Uh, and what we see is these other tests that are derived that they use as a guideline, like the bench press, instead of looking at other tests that are bona fide in proving um how good of an athlete someone is and their potential for the upside. So I think, you know, there's all those indicators in different sports and in different activities. I think what you're talking about is collecting data for the sake of it versus collecting good data. Yeah. Um, and, and I think when I hear that, you know, that's, that's the great thing. And there's one other thing I wanted to add. It's a baseball point. I think it was Ty Cobb that said if hitting 50 home runs a year was important, he would have done it. He just didn't want to give up the points on his average. I believe that was – the essence of his of his um of his quote. Yeah, he was about hitting well. Bolt, you wanted to add to that? Yeah, just a quick story, Kevin. And and you covered Rico Bronia, I believe, when he was with the Mets and yep. the Phillies. Um, 
he was in the Eastern League and probably the best hitter in the Eastern League with the Tigers in London, Ontario, when I was coaching. And he was as good a gap-to-gap hitter. He ended up hitting about 310 and winning the batting title. He almost won the Triple Crown. He hit 20 home runs, uh, had enough power to hit the ball out of the park the other way. They didn't have to be uh, moonshots or anything. And next year he made the big league team. And Sparky Anderson made the mistake of letting him know the old Tiger Stadium, and you've seen it, Kevin, the overhang in right field. Yep. But uh, all you got to do is get it in the air and you're going to hit 40. You know, you're going to – and Rico struggled for years. And he, he re, re-energized his career in New York and Philadelphia and ended up being a very good hitter, hitting a lot of doubles, driving in runs, uh, producing, hitting for an average, and he still hit some home runs. Um, and – that's like a, a, a road. I don't understand why we keep going down that road, yeah. uh, knowing knowing what the result's going to be. Well, and to, to back that up, <clears throat> this is and this is amazing to me. And this this shows me when I talk about clowns, I'm talking about the guys running baseball teams and making baseball decisions. This shows me they don't know what they're talking about because if you look at pitching nowadays, and and Bull and I talk about this all the time. They don't command. Most of the guys don't command. So, so you're going to get that, that meatball. You're going to get that pitch that you can drive almost every at bat, some point in a at bat. So go up there with the mindset that you're going to hit it, you know, hit it hard somewhere and make contact. If teams made contact, they would just be so much better. And, and, and a lot of teams are doing that. And I, and I predict right now, a team that wins the World Series this year will be the team that makes the most contact and moves runners along. Because that's what happens every year and plays better defense. You know, yep. if you have to look at a nutshell, here's what I would say. Don't be the Boston Red Sox. Look what the Red Sox have become under Heim Bloom. They have guys that can't field, can't catch pop-ups, can't throw the ball home, can't catch fly balls, won't chase fly balls. But they all take the big swings, and uh, now they want to get rid of heart and soul players because, you know, they're, they're, they're sellers. We'll see what happens. But that's what's happening, and it's happening throughout baseball because the guys that are in charge of the teams fool the owners, and the owners fall for the malarkey. And uh, I hate to use that word because somebody else used that word, and uh, he's given us a lot of malarkey, but that's that's that. <laughs> I think it's a great point, and that, that goes across all levels now. I mean, the teams that put the ball in play, and the teams that field in that six-foot-by-six-foot six box, I'll steal from Ted Kubiak, um, our friend Ted Kubiak. Those are the teams that are going to have success. It's not not brain surgery. And unfortunately, we're seeing it trickle down to the youth levels and the grassroots levels, and it's hitting the minor leagues. And then we saw it with the Red Sox predominantly last week. Um, but I want to get into this a little bit. We, we talked a little bit about pitching there. Kevin kind of led us into it. Uh, for our young audience out there and our coaches, long toss, lost art, often forgotten. Uh, we have a conversation later today with Alan Jager, who has the Jager Band's phenomenal person into arm maintenance and arm strength. Tell us what a, a typical game of long toss looks like and why it's so important for pitchers and, and all players, actually. You know, it was it was never uh, a defined thing. It was things that players did uh, in an effort to build arm strength that made sense to players. You know, when when, when I first signed – 
guys would stretch their arm out. You know, the coaches would tell you, stretch your arm out. You know, when you're, when you, you know, when you're throwing long, which is more than 150 feet. And I think, you know, Kevin and I, and Kevin can probably share the story from Rick Peterson, why 150 feet seemed to be the stopping point in, uh, in a lot of organizations. Um, but I'll let Kevin share that story. But, you know, you, when, when I went over to Latin America years ago to play and coach, the Latin kids were throwing from one foul pole to the other foul pole. And not only throwing baseballs, they would throw softballs. And, I, and, and then all of a sudden you would see these Latin kids, their velocity starting to climb up and climb up and climb up. And, you know, Alan was a very, very passionate person about baseball and studied studied. And he came up with, you know, to me, one of the better long toss programs, uh, you know, where you stretch yourself out as far as you can go. You know, your arm knows no boundaries if you do it properly. Um, long toss develops rhythm and timing. Um, when you throw long, your arm ends up in its most proper, strongest arm slot. Um, and, and as you stretch yourself out to your maximum, you start to come back in. And at the end, for pitchers especially, you do what's called pull downs, which creates, uh, you know, a, a clean delivery a ball that has great carry through the strike zone and tremendous finish. Uh, you finish it. You're behind the ball. You follow through. You get down through the ball, and you're trying to make the ball carry 70 feet through the catcher's glove is really what the thought process always is. And and, and, and the results were fabulous, you know, uh, for what Allen's done for kids all over the country. He pairs it with uh, – his J bands, which are basically the Job exercises, which are probably the best thing for pitchers to do. And I'm sure Sal could go into that. And, um, you know, I, 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 you know, we did it, you know, in our youth programs here in town when my son was growing up and all of our kids gained velocity um, and they gained arm strength. Yeah, and to highlight that, every time I was at Yankee games, whoever, Mets games, Padre games, I would spend a lot of time on the field, especially around the batting cage, way back when, when they used to let the media around the batting cage, where I got most of my information. Uh, but as teams would come out, so people understand, this is another thing baseball has lost too. <clears throat> Fans used to love to come early to watch batting practice and also – at times, it would be infield practice, outfield practice to teach your kids how to do that. But Major League Baseball, in their wisdom, has basically cut that stuff out where the fans don't see it as much anymore. And so they're not they're not teaching the next, next generation of fans, which is a shame. But anyway, I would always see, and I'll just throw a couple of names out there, because I, I would always be aware of this. And, and believe me, the baseball is very hard. So you got to have your eyes open when you're on the field. And um, but I would always see guys like Cano and and A Rod and Jeter and whoever he he would be his throwing partner. They would literally go from the Yankee dugout. They come out of the Yankee dugout. Cano would go down by the the home home plate fence area, and by the end of this, Jeter is all the way by right or A Rod is all the way down by right field. You know, uh, th- you know, three hundred feet, and uh, and they would do that, and they did it not just once. They did it every game before they got ready for the game. And the point I want to ask 
Bull is what are we talking here about the number of throws? Because this also brings in Sal, because we're talking about staying away from injuries. And we know how basically everybody is having Tommy John or some kind of injury this year because uh, surgery, because basically they, they can't stay away from injury. So how many, how many throws are important? And I know the distance we, we talked about 150. It turns out teams were doing at 150 because, and I've been down to rehab situations where like a DeGrom is coming back from an injury. The way it's set up is that they would always have a rehab coach and a rehab trainer. And they would work with the guy who's on rehab. That's how it works, you know, because he's out there at different hours and that's how it's set up in Port St. Lucie. So it turns out, and not necessarily this trainer, but the problem was trainers could only throw 150 feet. That's why they limited the space, the throw. So they eventually got longer than that because they realized, uh, you know, uh, it's more important to throw deeper. So how many throws make a good long toss ball? Um Basically, you, you, you figure out where, where your max is. Um, uh, you know, one of the things that um, Alan has calculated is if you can throw the ball 300 feet, that, that equates to about 90 miles per hour. Um, you have to get some air underneath the ball. Now, I know Rick Peterson and has him and I have had some good conversations on this, and uh, I'm kind of in – you know, I love Alan's program, but I also understand that when you throw uphill <clears throat> high and long that you can develop some bad habits. But basically, okay, if you're at 300 feet, you're going to make 10 throws at 300 feet. You're going to come in about uh, uh, 20 feet. You're going to make 10 throws, 20 feet. 10 throws and you're going to come all the way in until you get to about 70 feet for the pull down. And each time you come in, there's less air under the ball and there's more focus on carry. Um, and, you know, once you get to about halfway, you know, you're, you know, you're trying to really make some very aggressive throws. It, it, it's an aggressive long toss program, but it pushes you to the limit of, uh, you know, of what your arm strength can be. Like I'm going to work with a young man this morning and he gets out as far as 330, 340. Um, and he's got, he's got a really good arm. So, um, and then just one quick thing, Kevin, you talked about ballparks not being open for BP. This is one of my biggest pet peeves as a kid. I couldn't wait to get to a ballpark because early because you would see batting practice. My dad would take us. You'd see infield. You'd see guys playing pepper. Now when the gates open, there's nobody on the field. Right, and it's the uh, field. The field is empty except young intern women and men that are working in the media that are just walking around on the field. And you look out there and you go, well, "Where are the players?" Oh, I get it. They're sitting in the clubhouse playing video games and eating <laughs> eating their pregame meal so and also a pro tip pro tip for fans because again we've seen it all between the three of us here in a lot of ways and uh, Sunday games are wonderful to go to but don't expect to see any kind of pregame work before Sunday because that's the day they they've decided uh, you know to manage the load management uh, uh, doctrines police yeah. yeah yeah they don't they don't so if you come sunday early to a game on sunday and you get a nice seat in left field thinking oh i'm gonna get some home run balls with your kid who's got his glove 
and you're sitting there and nothing happens, that's what happens. So your best bet, um, if you're looking for that kind of game, I would say your best bet is after an off day, get a ticket to a game after an off day, because sometimes after an off day, they may do a little bit more work than a normal day. Those are, those are good points. I, I, I know Sal's got a question. I want to throw one at bowl here on long toss. With as, as I'm working with the different levels, now I'm talking specifically about youth, we do our long toss timed. So it's, it's, it's vigorous. There's a little bit of cardio to it. And I have coaches that stand on each end of the long toss because it's not going to be as accurate as, the, as the, uh, the older guys, the big leaguers. They have baseballs in their hands. So if something's missed, boom, they toss the ball right back in. What kind of merit does that have? Is that a good idea, bad idea? We do it time, same idea, arc under the balls. We get more distance, more online. Is you know, accuracy, I, but we want to be behind the ball all the time is kind of the, the teaching point. Yeah, I think that's a great, uh, great exercise. Uh, you should be exhausted when you're done long tossing because you get into your legs really good when you're long tossing and doing it timed like you're doing it. You're also building very good cardio, and I think it's it's fabulous. Uh, the big thing is quality control, just like anything else. You want to make sure that they're not developing any bad habits, rushing through um, a backload, a balance, uh, flying open. You know, just make sure that they're not developing any bad habits. You know, that was one of my pet peeves with weighted balls is people sell the weighted balls and the kids go home and they develop so many bad habits throwing these heavy balls by flying their front shoulder and their head open to create torque to throw the ball hard, which they want them to do. That's just creating a bad habit as a pitcher. It's it's not good. So you don't want – I mean, I, I, I love the idea, but it's just making sure that there's quality control – that your kids don't develop bad habits. No great advice. Sal, you wanted to add. Yeah, I think it's important to, uh, first of all, I, I question everything. So in my field, there's, you know, some sacred cows of program design and how you develop a program, uh, both in the short and the long term, which I, I don't believe in anymore because uh, I could do two hours on that. But the point is, you have to question all of these things that have been done. Um, and... I think what, what you're talking about, you know, long toss used to be a thing from what I'm understanding that was kind of done by feel. Uh, and I think there is a need when experts like Bull um, do things by feel so others could take advantage of the strategies and philosophies you need to put it in a structure. Um, I, I tried not, not to be married to the structure. I've had to do that because a lot of what I do is by feel. There's an art that really is the overlying discipline in the to the science. Um, there's a lot of science we can point to, but the science is not what the driving force is, in my opinion, of what we do with our athletes. The art of it is, and the art comes from having seen thousands or tens of thousands of athletes and seeing the outcomes of that. So um, the, the thing I, I would recommend in, in – people listening to this is you can't take your kid and have him do a long toss that would be done with a, a mature 19 year old, whether he's high school, college or minor league player. Um, and you need to be able to uh, scale that down. I think one of the big mistakes we see is we apply these uh, systems that are meant for adults and we apply them to kids and that leads to trouble as well. Oh, great points. I think yeah. like, those are, 
Yeah, those are tremendous points. You know, I'm I'm looking at it from a, a, a an older group of kids and professional kids, and 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 I know that uh, and and Alan will be able to explain this. I know he spent a lot of time with uh, um, sports medicine people and people that uh, kinesiology connect connectivity people in developing this program, um, but. Uh, you know, and, and that's a great point, Sal. If, if they're young kids and you get them out there and you get them throwing and you can stretch them out and they get to a maximum point and they can make as many throws as possible um, and you never push them past the point where they tell you they're tired either. You know, you don't, you, you don't go, oh, keep going. No. Okay, when you're tired, we're going to shut it down. But we're going to do it again in two days, and you're going to be surprised that you're going to see yourself gaining arm strength. There's a great adage I heard um, a coach use, and and I follow it. You want them to leave you like you want them to come to you to start the next session. So for me, that's kept me from getting into the trap that so many people in the performance field get into where they want to beat the stuffing out of their kids. Uh, and finish the workout. I hate the term, the grind, and I hate these finishers that wind up beating people into dust at the end of their session. Um, That's why at the end of my sessions, I always do something that's A, fun, and B, athletic, because they get geared up for it. Um, And it also keeps you from going too long. Uh, And one last thing I'm going to throw out there, for anyone who seriously coaches and coaches kids, uh, and by kids, I mean anyone from the beginners up through high school. There is a book called Children in Sports Training, and it's by a Polish um, expert, Joseph Drabik. And what he's done is he's put into a structure the kind of work that should be done with kids from the time they first start a sport all the way up and through their, at their, the peak of their development. And, you know, it's not all, I think, uh, 100%, but as we spoke about earlier, he puts into – a structure that people can understand um, the way you should be doing and what you should be doing with kids all the way through their development and points out the best times to do certain things. Yeah, um, yeah that's a great point, Sal. And I think that's the same philosophy we have with our show. We always want people, when the show ends, to want more. And uh, that that's because there's so much information out there and we don't want to bury you with it. But always want your kid to have fun on the field and also be serious. It's a combination of uh, being serious and having fun. And, again, I get back to my Aaron Judge story. Judge always has fun. He's always smiling, but he's always super serious. You look in the Yankee dugout, he's ready to work, man, and he's ready to pound you. And and he's also ready to field and throw and back up and all those little things. Uh, It's really not that hard. Find a player that you like that plays the game right and emulate that player. Great thoughts. Bull, you want to add? Yeah, just, uh, you know, for uh, like on the back end of our long toss, the, the other thing we do is is we would do our band work, um, which is not strenuous. You, you, you handle a, a stretchy point that you handle and you do it right. You go through the range of motions of the Job exercises and then you have the, uh, we do some core work. We do sit-ups. We do some sprints we do some uh some pickups uh little things like that um 
And and I always and as you know, Sal said, you try to make it fun. One of the ways we used to do our sprints is something my high school baseball coach did. It was called Chase the Rabbit, and it was the slower guy started between home and first, and the faster guy started at home plate, and you went from uh, from that, that point to third base. So you were getting base running, cutting the corner. You were racing, so the got one guy was trying to catch the the fast guy was trying to catch the slow guy, and the slow guy was going, "Oh crap! I hope he doesn't catch me." So they were running extremely hard, and we used to do that. And our kids actually loved running at that point. And you're going, "Wow, this is <laughs> what a great idea that, that my high school coach had in 1975 or yeah, whatever." If you, if you were going to have kids do 12, 40, or 60 yard sprints, they'd be dragging. But when you inject the competition and the fun, um, they, they'd go all day. There's so many ways you could do that um, that it's a, it's a shame and it's a waste that more uh, coaches don't know how to do that. Well, comp- competition is the word. And I think in our society, competition is being taken away in a lot of ways. And I think we need to bring it back as coaches and, and, and understand these kids. Uh, it's okay to compete. And you're going to win, you're going to lose. Learn how to lose. So I, I, you know, just a small point, but it's very important. Um, I would always, when I coach, especially at the lower levels, here's a pro tip for low-level coaching. Um, go buy a, a metal garbage can from, uh, you know, Home Depot or anywhere else, your local, if you still have a hardware store, 10 bucks or whatever, although it might be more these days. Um, and go buy that garbage can. And when you get like, especially T-ball age or uh, a little bit lower minors or whatever, uh, even all the way up to, you know, little league age and even in the high school. But when you're coaching these kids, put the, put the garbage can at home plate, divide them into two separate entities, shortstop, half the team, half the team is at first at second base, two coaches, one hits the second baseman uh, side, one hits the shortstop side, alternate, have them throw home. If they hit the garbage can in the air to get two points, on the ground, one point, and uh, and go from there and play to 10. And invariably, the first time you play this game with the kids, especially the younger age, the team that loses will throw down their gloves. Or some of them may cry, you know. And then you move that side, you move the shortstop side, the second base side, and, and they may win because it's a little shorter throw, for some, it seems to be. And uh, and But again, you're teaching them competition, teach them how to win, how to lose, and is and also get ready for the next play. So it's a small little drill, but uh, something I came up with that I think is pretty good. I think it's great. I like the phrase to play the next play. It teaches kids how to compete, deal with failure, deal with mistakes, deal with success, but get on the next play because that, that's I see that a lot with not just the, the younger kids but the, the big leaguers. I want to ask you, any any of you guys can jump on this. We're talking about good stuff for kids to do, but there's a lot of disinformation out there. What's some bad advice or bad things that you've heard about pitching or throwing that, that our parents should be aware of or our kids should be aware of? What's some bad advice you've heard? You don't have to name names, but. I, you know, for me, there's, uh, I think the, the and, and, and it's, it's something that's going to be hard to get rid of because we've created the monster uh, in our, in our industry. Um, you look at the draft every year and, you know, uh, you know, friends of mine that still do it, they go, you know, the list, the list of pitchers, the pref list is 
the hardest throwers at the top and the softest throwers are at the bottom. Um, there's no emphasis on pitching. So to me, it's the overemphasis and the, and the desire, just like we talked about earlier with hitters and power that make them worse baseball players, uh, pitchers throwing hard that make them worse pitchers. Um, you know, the, the, the emphasis being on how hard, how much spin, how much uh, shape and all that other stuff instead of the art of pitching. And, and I think we're going to have Jim Cott on, and I'm sure he'll, he'll give us a historic lesson on the art of pitching because pitching is an art. Yeah, that's great. I, I, I think parents have to be a little more protective of their kids. Uh, you know, I always tend – uh, when we get in, when we're faced with these situations where things are so off the rails, uh, I am not a half measure person anymore because I've done too much and see, have seen too much time wasted trying to uh, incrementally change things. Uh, I'm at the, I think we're at the point, uh, and it would take a lot for someone to convince me otherwise that we should stop letting kids pitch. Um, as early as they're pitching, especially as much as they're pitching, I think there should be some severe limits on how much a kid could pitch. Uh, I don't think everybody should pitch just because they have the best arm. I think there's other sports where you could look at certain things they do. Um, it doesn't mean they should play a specific position because there's a lot of other things that go into it. And and as you just mentioned, pitching is an art. Um, and I think that's – and you certainly cannot play baseball – 12 months of the year. You cannot throw a baseball from, you know, your baseball season. If we want to start the year in the traditional baseball season, you cannot throw the ball from March 1st, which it is up here in New Jersey, all the way through the year until you get to the next season. No, those are great points. Sal. You know, like I, I could remember telling a, a, a parents of a kid I drafted out of high school, you know, what's, you know, what, what do we need to do? I said, well, the first thing you need to do is you got to learn the word no yep. to, your, to your high school coach who's pitching Mark on Monday and Friday every week. And because the rule says Monday's a new week, he thinks it's okay. And that's absolutely criminal. Um, and, and I drafted the kid and he went out and he did really well, but he ended up blowing out his arm three or four years into his career after having a lot of success. He was a very, very good pitcher who had good stuff. But, you know, all of that wear and tear on his arm in high school, and and it's criminal at times. I, You know, I've said it before. You know, you could sue for malpractice if, if it was a medical thing because truly it ends up being a medical thing. These coaches don't care when they're in tournaments you know, you hear, hey, this is the biggest game of your life. No, it's not. You're 12 years old. Right. It's a tournament game. And there is no biggest game of your life until, you, until you're Aaron Judge in the World Series. Well, and then I think the other thing is parents don't realize your kid has a good arm. Uh, and I have a kid that I worked with who's now in college who still has a problem with his elbow. He's a uh, I'm sorry, a shortstop center fielder. Pitched a couple of games, screwed up his elbow. It's been over a year since his arm has been right and it's affected everything he's done because they wanted him to pitch because he has a great arm and they figured he could come in and throw an inning. Well, you know, one instance could set you back long-term, if not forever. 
Uh, and but really, one instance is never going to make you or break. It's never going to make you, but it can break you. So you got to be careful. Now, pitch and throw. Then I think our audience needs to know the difference. There's a difference between pitching and throwing. And Sal brought up a point here. They brought the kid in to pitch because he could throw, and that's probably why he got hurt because he was out there throwing and not pitching. And that's the Bulls' point. Kevin, you wanted to jump in. Yeah, I think there's a. I I think it's there's a lot of good information out there. Just pick the good ones, and uh, you know, even some of the bad ones have some good points to them. You know what I mean? Be smart. You know. I, I, I'm going to use a, a term that's been lost in society again. Common sense. Have some common sense with your kid and even your, with yourself as a player. I mean, when you get to a certain age, it's not your parents' job. It's your job. You know, your, your thing to make sure that you're doing it right and you're getting better. And I disagree with Sal on one thing I'm throwing. I, you know, yes, the uh, you don't want to be pitching all year long. I get that. But I remember when I... You know, and, and I, I agree also, you don't need to be playing baseball 12 months a year. The other sports help tremendously. Getting back to Judge, since that's the central theme today, he was a football, you know, he played basketball. He was really good in basketball. He was really good in football. So he played three sports in high school. And, um, and you know, he would have been a heck of a tight end in the NFL as well, you know. So so play different sports. But also, when, when it comes to throwing, I don't think it hurts. When I was, you know, when I, and I go back to my own uh, life, but our generation, we played baseball every day, and nobody ever had a sore arm. <laughs> you know, I mean, we played every day, and uh, you know, we went throwing ninety miles per hour, but we we kind of had our you had to you had to get your mechanics right to to win, because back then when you were with kids at the playground, if your team didn't win, there was another team waiting to play that would take your place. So you would try to stay in the field as long as you could. And as a result, you're playing baseball sun up to sun down, basically. And now it's other sports that you can do that way. But if you do it, if you do it with some common sense, I think you, you won't get hurt. Well, but that's, we're never going back to that. So, you know, with the way the structure is now, these kids are not going out and playing with their buddies no. uh, on, on, a, on a couple of hours after school. Because they have they have club practice and or they have weekend tournaments. So I understand. I agree, Kevin, in principle with what you're saying. But we're not there. We're never going back to that. Because well, what's, what's that? But you still hit my point. You're missing the whole point. My point is you're in charge of your body. So you oh, figure, no out, doubt. You no figure doubt. out what's best for you. And if that coach is telling you, hey, we need you to pitch today in this big game, you tell them. You know what, Coach? I I pitched uh, I pitched on Saturday, and it's only Monday, and I'm a little tired. I'm a little sore. So, well, yeah, it, it goes. It, wait, it goes, wait, wait. The situation changes, but the common sense doesn't change. It's well, no, I agree. And then that's where we've talked about parents have to take more control. That's the uh, other thing too. Again, I, I, you keep throwing it on the parents. It's up to these kids too. These kids, when they get to a certain age, they control. And here's another point. You know what the kids control? Their time on video games. They're playing video games all freaking day. You know, if you take some of that time and work on baseball, you might be better. So it's up to the kids. So, I, you know, I, I hate throwing it on coaches, parents. Some of these kids got to make their own decisions. Well, and I think Dave and I could speak to it, um, you know, stories about parents running roughshod and doing things that are not great for the kids, even if the kid wants to do the right thing. So, I think well, you're always I, gonna have you're gonna you know, Carl Malden in uh, Fear Strikes Out was that kind of parent for Jimmy Pearsall. Yeah. So you always yeah. have the wacky parents. My point is, as a ball player, as a kid, 
you can control a lot of what you do. And maybe those two hours you spent video games, you know, on a, on, a, on a Saturday could have been, maybe if you took a half hour out and worked on something, you would have been better. No maybe doubt. you listen to the coaches who maybe do have some good advice, but you don't go crazy. So again, if you don't have common sense and you just let people pull you around like sheep, for, for you're going to eventually get hurt. And, that, and that's on you. Right. You're, you're, you're right, Kevin. And I, you know, I taught my, you know, as a parent, you have to teach your son or daughter when to say no uh, in, in, in an injury situation or a, a common sense situation. And my son played middle school baseball and, uh, you know, makes the team and wasn't playing. He comes into a game and pitches really well. And um, all of a sudden, the coach goes, oh, wow, this guy can pitch a little bit. Didn't think he could pitch. Um, he said uh, he threw four, like four innings and 85 pitches. And that was on a Tuesday, and he wanted to start him on Thursday. <laughs> and my son said, no, I, you know, I, don't, I don't think my dad's going to let me. That doesn't make sense. And uh, he didn't play the rest of the year. Yeah, that's, uh, that's not surprising. You get some uh, you get some great uh, situations there. <laughs> At that point, he was eight for thirteen, and um, he never played in the field or DH the rest of the season. I think he threw a couple innings after that, and that was about it. And uh, I, you know, it was just unbelievable. You know, I, I'm not a big government person but we do need to have some common sense governing of our youth baseball for these coaches. People that are in charge of tournaments have to go, Oh no. Whoa, whoa. It, it, you know, we can't do that. You can't bring this kid back in. He just pitched yesterday. Yeah. There's, there's a lot of arbitrary rules that don't make a lot of sense. And I think Kevin chronicled that it starts at the top with MLB with the things they're doing. Now, with, with our group, so if you guys ever want to go back in time, I know you've got boys coming down to the Charleston area, to you. We now have, with our program one-on-one, -on -one, we have team practices with the coaches on the weekend. But now during the week, we make the kids come to an either an open gym setting, basketball, or an open field setting with baseball. And they have to go back to the old days where they pick the teams, they create the structure, they create the rules. And if you lose – you go to the end of the line and you got to wait to get back on the field of the courts. They learn that competitiveness. And it's awesome. It's back to how it used to be. And they, they know when their arms sore, they know who the best players are. They put the guys who bat first. No parents are allowed to talk, touch anything. And I tell them the best way I've learned about my children is observing them, watching how they play with each other, watching how they socialize, watch how they interact. And then you create a structure around their learning strategies and their socialization strategies, rather than going in and, you know, being that hero parent who wants to be have the greatest twelve year old team in the history of sport. So yeah, that's great that you do that, Dave. And I think more that's people, awesome. And I know I agree with Sal. We aren't going back, but I think smart people can create some common sense where we go back a little bit like that. And uh, it's a, it's like I don't like TV commercials, and I, they are getting that. That should be a subject one day. How dumb commercials are now. But the one commercial I do like is the commercial where it's pickup basketball. And and the person, the kid with the per first pick picks Barkley. Yes, yeah. so, you know that kids know who to pick. They pick the Barkley. They do. Now, uh, to kind of segue. We're talking about overuse and abuse, and kids having some common sense and standing up for their bodies. Let's get to the Mike Trout thing quick here. I know Mike Trout is injured again. Um, we're seeing injuries to Michael King, the pitcher. We saw and Drew Jones, a top pick in the draft, get hurt during batting practice. 
what's going on here? I mean, how, how are we getting to this point where guys are getting hurt doing normal, regular baseball tasks? Well, let's start with Sal with this one. Yeah. Well, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think we could we could do another six hours on this, but I think what it is, it, it's an illustration of everything we've been talking about, both on and off the cast. And historically, you know, Kevin and I, our relationship goes back over 20 years. Our conversations started about this very same subject um, with the steroid problem being injected into it. And everything that we've talked about, I think that's why Kevin has listen to me a little bit is because we I kind of laid out for him what we were going to see and we're seeing it and again it's time for the people in charge to justify why they do what they're doing and how they can continue this uh, going forward when you have everybody from your high school baseball player to the best kid in the league best guy in the league hurt um, with these injuries that don't come from playing baseball. You you can tell me he works hard and he swings the bat a thousand times. He's doing what he did. It's the weight room and it's the stuff off the field that the old time guys never did. You know, I, I laugh when I hear about it because these guys travel in first class accommodations. They have the best hotel rooms. They probably have custom beds. Uh, they fly first class or, or charter planes. They never ride on a bus or a, or a, or a, uh, a train. Those guys in the old days played and they did all the same things and swung the bat and did pepper and they did their pregame routines and didn't have these back injuries. Um, so it's it's everything that's being done off the field is coming home to roost. Yeah. Another good tip. Just, uh, I'll, you know, I'll throw it to you guys, but I want to make a good tip here. I don't know if Trout did this because I, I didn't cover mine on a daily basis. I would know if I cover mine on a daily basis. <clears throat> but some of the really smart hitters – if they were righty, they would take a bunch of swings lefty too, um, you know, just to get the muscles kind of balanced on both sides. The, uh, the the Japanese pitchers and bull. I don't know if you have experience with this, but I had heard that uh, guys like Hideo Nomo uh, would throw bullpen sessions left-handed um, when uh, they they would have an off day, and, and and I'm sure that's for body balance. And we do that with our my. My neighbors think I'm crazy because all four of our children, two boys, two girls, switch hit and they shoot with either hand. And I don't do that to create a, you know, to be Frankenstein creating a monster. I do it for body balance and it helps your brain out too, to be able to use both sides. So that's a great point, Kevin. I, I would, they get overused to that one side and it's, I guess it's only natural after a while you start to wear and tear your body. No, those are all great points. I, I had never seen that with the Japanese players. I do know that they throw all the time bullpens, meaningful bullpens, and their, 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 their biggest focus is to throw strikes and make pitches that are quality pitches. Um, Common sense, right? Know, and yeah. And then, you know, again, body awareness, you know, you're your own best coach as a hitter or a pitcher. You feel when you're flying open. Um, if you keep getting called out on pitches away, that means you're not seeing the ball away very well. It means you're pulling off, your head's moving. If you're a pitcher and you're either your hands are late or you're pulling pitches, it means you're probably flying open. Body awareness. Um, you know, Rick Peterson had given me an old drill when, when I was coaching. Uh, we used to blindfold our guys and have them throw pitches to see how good their body awareness was and to have like a mental picture of the strike zone and where the ball was. And our kids who were good athletes and had good body awareness actually were pretty close to throwing strikes. And you could just close your eyes and do that too. 
Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I've done yeah. that with Rick. Yeah. I love that stuff. And, uh, you know, great, great thoughts today, guys. I think our audience got a, got a ton today. Kevin, I know we're, we're, we're a week old now with the Hall of Fame inductions, and we saw Jim Cott, who's going to be a guest on the show. I know you did a great story on him. Also saw Gil Hodges uh, finally get in, which is great for him. But we all know you have a special relationship with the Hall of Fame induction weekend, and you've been a major figure down there for years, being invited to countless dinners and uh, guys like Mike Piazza. Tell us a little bit about, tell our audience about, you know, that that's the end of the trail, that the one the zero one percent make it there. Tell us what it's like down there. Some, uh, you know, maybe a story or two or some of the people you were with down at the Hall of Fame in the past. Well, it's always great because the players uh, and every one of them, uh, I don't think I've ever seen a, a really bad speech. They may be long, but every one of them appreciates where they came from and they all talk about their roots, you know, like their dad, their coach, their high school coach, this guy, that guy, their mom, um, you know, and and then it humbles them. And you see those kind of athletes in a humble situation is great. And then also when you see them away at their team, like there's always parties. That's the great thing about uh, when, when you cover it. Um, and I didn't go this year, um, but it, on Saturday night, they have parties. So uh, each guy that gets inducted has his own party. They may have it at a brewery. They may have it here, there, anywhere. And even the, uh, like the Jason Starks of the world, uh, you know, Tim Kirchie, and they have their own little party too. So you try to hit as many parties as you can. And um and you get to hang out with, you know, I remember when Pedro's party, you know, just, I'm, I'm there hanging out with Pedro and we get to talk about pitching and things that he did. And, you know, that's why I picked up that tip about the chin. You know, he he keeps his chin on home plate, basically. And um, that came at a party at one of his places. So the Piazza family, too. And how much it meant to Vince Piazza, who passed away recently. And, um, you know, um, basically... Uh, to see the players and the families, it takes them back to when they were little kids, and it's nice to see. And even the writers, you guys, would it would be a, a great collection of writers so you guys could get together one shot. I know you mentioned Bob Nightingale in the past where you guys would kind of share a, share a house or uh, share an area to kind of have camaraderie there as well. Yeah, we rent houses. Uh, the way it works is you would rent a house and then um, – you know, you, you, you could have a, like, I would have Gary Hughes, longtime scout. He'd be in the house and he was, uh, you know, we'd take care of Gary and then Nick Cafardo who passed away. Nick would be in the house and we'd tell great stories and we'd work very hard. I mean, I used to work extremely hard at the Hall of Fame because I used to have to produce three stories a day. And, uh, but then we'd have a little bit of fun. And that's the uh, same thing when you're on a team too, because you want to have, you want to have, uh, you want to have fun and remember what baseball is all about. That's great. Bull, you wanted to add to that? Yeah, I, um, I'll tell anybody that's listening, if you love baseball, go to Cooperstown. There's nothing greater. It's uh, Everything you just talked about is the microcosm of the greatness of this game. It's the relationships that we build. It's the gratitude for those who helped us get to where we've gotten to as you sit back and you realize the magnitude of it. And um, uh, as a young kid, my dad took us there twice for a vacation of two days or whatever. We spent most of the time in the car, but the day at Cooperstown was unbelievable. Uh, I went when I was coaching in the New York Penn League when we were in Oneana. And then I had the honor of being uh, one of Cal's guests when, when he went in and, 
to, to say that I didn't sit there and cry of the emotions of him and Tony Gwynn's speeches uh, and just just the magnitude of what the Hall of Fame is and, and what it re- represents of our country and how great our game is. Oh, it's old school and old fact. I, I grew up, you know, an hour from there in, in the town of Rotterdam, the city of Schenectady. And my dad and I would go every year, I think from the age of five till I was 22 and uh, loved it down there. I, and I remember part of Cal's speech when he did it. And the part that resonated with me was they asked him how he wanted to be remembered. And he said to be remembered at all is enough. And I thought that was the most humble thing a player of his stature could ever say. He kind of, kind of hit it on head. Kevin, you wanted to add more to that? Yeah, the uh, and the other great thing, which the, the average fan doesn't get to see, see but it, you know, it was always fun for me, was because I had such a good relationship with the Hall of Fame, we, we would be able to go over to hang out at the Otisaga Hotel. And uh, Josh Roberts, Roberts is the president now, and Jeff Idelson used to be, and uh, – you know, they would allow us to hang out there and we would see the players with their families as long as you didn't make a nuisance of yourself. But you could you'd be sitting in the lobby and it's, it's an ornate. It's like a Gilded Age type hotel with a big veranda. So you'd be, you know, you'd run into guys and most of the guys really want to talk. They're great at that point. They're, they're, they're shield, the defense is down. So, you know, Cal would be out there on the porch. I sh- showing different swings. They get into baseball conversations. Brooks Robinson was always a wonderful man. You know, uh, Ernie Banks was always fun. Uh, uh, Tony Gwynn, I was there, obviously, that year with Tony and uh, Cal. And you just see their family, how much it means to the family as well. And Hank Aaron. Hank Aaron's walking around getting, you know, I used to laugh because I would see Hank Aaron uh, running the, uh, you know, and these players would run into the – into the gift shop and buy the New York post, you know, when, and when I was working for the post at the time. So, uh, you know, uh, so it was great conversations. Goose Gossage, Goose should be upset about something. And he, he, he's a lot of fun too, but he was passionate. And I think that's the one word I want to talk about. All these guys had a passion for the game that showed up uh, and they had incredible skills. I'm not going to overlook that, but they had a passion that helped carry them to their greatness. And, uh, and if if you have a passion for the game, whatever ability you have, will you'll reach it, and uh, that that's the way to go. I, th- I think that's a great way. I mean, in, in our audience, I think, gets that sense from from the three of you guys. There's tremendous passion for what you do and your vocation, but also tremendous passion for each other. I think that that shows itself in the show. And and audience, just a little bit about my uh, my our resident experts here. The sense that you get from from all all three of them, and, and hopefully, I exude it myself. They're talking about meaningful work and meaningful relationships. I mean, if you're going to break it down. And guys, I, I appreciate you guys being good role models for me, but also for our audience out there. And, and uh, great show today. Uh, tremendous information for our audience. We went a little longer than normal. I want to I want to thank a group, though, too. Um, I talk about my baseball and basketball groups. Academia Sports has recognized our baseball group as something that they want to get behind. And they're now going to sponsor our our team of baseball players here, uniforms, pleats, gloves, bats, et cetera. So we're happy to be partnered with Academia uh, Sports with that. Great group there, homegrown, family-oriented. And then our friend Ted Kubiak, who was one of our first uh, real voices of the game guests, is doing a second book now on his fielding on children. And he's using a couple of our players with one-on-one as live video examples. So he's going to critique them live, and we're going to get a working model of what Ted can do not just with pros, but with young kids. So thanks for all the friends out there that are getting get, becoming a part of this show. And guys, thank you. We appreciate your time today. Again, great information. And 
We'll see you guys uh, tomorrow. We have Jack Cush Jr. on Diamond Nation, former Oakland A's draft pick. Uh, we'll follow that with Justin Orendorf with DBS Baseball the following week. Then Steve Keener, Little League Baseball president, is going to be on right before the World Series. And we're hoping to get Jim Cotton on to talk about his Hall of Fame induction and his long career. And now he's a, obviously a fantastic broadcaster. So thanks again, guys. Have a good day. Thanks, guys. Don't Great hang out. Guys. Thanks.